What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. And I am really excited for y'all to check out this conversation with my friend. Um, But before we get into that, I just want to remind y'all of a couple of things, a couple of ways to support the show. Number one, you can leave a review wherever you can drop one. Two, follow RTWD on Instagram. Three, share the show with someone you think would love it. And finally, join the Real Fam on Patreon. Your support goes a long way and uh, running the show actually is not free. So the more people that support the show, the better this show will be. Um, So yeah, join the Real Fam. That link will be in the uh, show notes there. All right, y'all, now on to this week's guest. I have the absolute pleasure of talking with somebody who's like a real life superhero. I, I swear, she's a real life superhero. I get a chance to talk to my friend, Nareda Young. Nettie is a proud Latina and first-generation seminarian at San Francisco Theological Seminary, who is also a spiritual director and an ordination candidate within the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. She was raised in a Pentecostal Christian congregation pastored by her grandparents, and her spiritual journey has fueled her passion to strengthen and support efforts of liberation for minoritized peoples in the church and society at large. You will often find her doing what she loves, meeting new people, enjoying nature, trying new food, dancing, and laughing with her family. She has a partner and three beautiful children, and I can attest to that, they are absolutely beautiful, and adventuring to new places, experiencing firsthand the beautiful diversity present in the world. We talk about a topic near and dear to my heart, deconstruction and decolonization of spirituality. Yes, it's gonna be one of those episodes, y'all. This was a great conversation and I hope y'all enjoy it. All right, y'all. Here's Nettie. Go ahead and share with the real fam who Nettie Young is. Oh, Nettie Young. Um, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I grew up in uh, Washington State, right. in rural Washington State. And uh, when I married Isaiah in 2012, uh, after a few years of living in Washington, we came to California. And so just that move from Washington to California, that's that was a really big part of my life that helped me grow in many ways. And um and we had our three children in California. They're all close in age. And uh, a few years ago, I started feeling, uh, a, a, I guess, a a call, you could say, in my heart. I, I realized that uh, most of my life has been around the church, has been involved in ministry. Since I was born, I've been in ministry, just whether it was volunteer or leading groups, and uh, felt that it was time to get some more formal training and reached out to some people that I had met and was encouraged to start seminary. Mm. And uh, I've been in seminary here at the school at San Francisco Theological Seminary for two years and have another couple years left of the program. But it's been it's been a it's been a lot of learning. And during the pandemic, it's come with its challenges. That's for sure. I bet. Um, all right. So I'm I'm really curious. You, you mentioned, you know, um, growing up uh, in the church, uh, and like a lot of your life being surrounded by the church. And then you decided to go to, uh, get your MDiv now. Um, but as we've had in our own, like, uh, personal interactions, you, uh, your faith journey has like, kind of like changed and taken some turns. I'm curious if you could like share what your faith journey has been like up until now. Uh, I grew up in a Mexican American Pentecostal evangelical church. (laughs) It was with the assemblies of God denomination and my grandparents were the lead pastors um, throughout my childhood, and my mother was the children's ministry pastor. And um, and a lot of my life growing up was centered around the church. 
and our faith that was central to our family life was our faith in God and our, our religion and our uh, religious practices and um, and the culture of the church and my family culture was very conservative and I was told you know how I should live um, in order to honor God and honor my parents and honor myself there were a lot of rules that I followed and as a young girl I would say um, these rules brought me a sense of stability. There was a lot of structure around my life and I just followed the rules and everything was good. You know, there was no worries as long as I did what I was told. And, um, and then as I grew up, um, I stayed a part of the Assemblies of God throughout my whole, you know, childhood and through my teenage years. And I got married to Isaiah right after I graduated my undergrad, right? Graduated college. Uh, we were actually youth pastoring for an Assemblies of God church. Mm. So Isaiah and I, in 2015, we decided to um, leave the church that we were serving. And we moved to Southern California. And we left because we were both feeling that we needed a different space to explore our faith more deeply. So we really just wanted to explore our faith and and ask questions and, and find communities that would help us go deeper. Yeah into these unknowns, into these questions. And so we moved to Southern California, which was closer to Isaiah's family. So we had his family support there, which was really nice. And uh, and I would say when I moved to California, it felt, spiritually speaking, like death. Mm. <laughs> like spiritually speaking, being raised again in such a, a a religious culture and community where there's there's so much certainty on how you should live and what it should look like. I left all of that to kind of feel like I had no container. I'm like, I don't, I don't have any answers. I don't even know what to believe. I don't know how to describe my faith. I feel completely just undone. Yeah. Um, do you think it was the move was, or do you think like you just weren't surrounded by people, what you knew or what was familiar? Like where, where would that, where would you say that feeling came from? Yeah. The, um, so when we moved to Southern California, again, it was, it was a choice that we both made Isaiah and I to find a space that would support our questioning. Mm. Um, and I do remember a, a moment I was, I was being introduced into how to practice more meditative prayer in 2015 when all this was happening, all these, you know, questions were coming up. Um, and I remember just being completely still for about 10 or 15 minutes and just saying, God, I, I feel like there's more, but I, I just, I don't really know, should I, should I go outside of this doctrine that I've been raised in my whole life? The Assemblies of God felt so familiar. And I memorized the 16 fundamental truths and, you know, the doctrine of the Assemblies of God. And, and I remember um, just in this time of, of stillness, I had my eyes closed and, the, and I saw it like in my mind, uh, a box. And the box completely shattered, mm. like completely exploded. And to me, that was a really significant moment of God saying, I'm so much bigger than your box. Yeah. Like, I'm so much bigger than your box. So so that was a moment for me that helped propel me to say yes to the move. Okay, we're going to move to Southern California. We're going to find community that will support us in this journey of going deeper in our faith because we felt that the community we were a part of wasn't able to hold that space for us. It wanted to stay in, in the confines of this box. Um, so yeah, moving <laughs> to Southern California, I just felt undone. I, I said, I, I have no answers. I don't know what I believe. And I feel, I felt alone. 
uh, that first year, I definitely felt alone because it was just a lot of loss experiencing what I felt like was a lot of loss from the place that I grew up my entire life and the people that I had grown up with. So where was the shift where you kind of felt, I guess, more comfortable in the question asking? I guess I don't know if you ever feel comfortable <laughs> in in like the abyss of doubt. But like what um, where would you say where that shift took place for you? Um, once we moved to Southern California, we started to seek out friendships because um, Isaiah and I both realized that community is important. And um, slowly we started to make friends. And one one very helpful part of, of helping me continue to explore and not feel alone on the journey was um, that Isaiah and I actually chose to be apartment, to serve an apartment ministry. Okay. So apartment ministry, the nonprofit organization that we work for, um, it's called Apartment Life. And so while we were in Southern California that first year trying to discern where, where we're going to live and um, where we want to land, apartment life um, was something we found. And there was an opening to serve at this community in Anaheim. So we moved to Anaheim in this apartment community that was it was a very different kind of community than I had ever lived before. Yeah. Um, I, most of my life was surrounded by people who looked like me because I grew up with a lot of relatives, a lot, my mom and my dad's side, um, even within the assemblies of God, that was the only denomination I had ever experienced uh, being a part of. So in Southern California, we live in Anaheim and this community is extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. So, so diverse. And we, chose to serve there as a team, me and Isaiah, a team that would help build community. We wanted to host weekly events for the the neighbors and we wanted to, um, sh you know, share in hospitality and help neighbors get to know one another and just build a sense of care for each other. Um, all, you know, while sharing the love of Christ, that was, that was the mission. It was a Christian nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this approach of relational evangelism and, uh, and so in this community, I, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I don't feel like I can connect to to these people because they seem so different than me. And I was worried that I was going to feel alone and disconnected there. Um, but to my surprise, the neighbors that I met and, and grew in relationship with, they blessed my life. They touched my life. They cared for my family in such incredible ways. Um, and so I'm talking neighbors who are from Lebanon, um, from Palestine, from Vietnam, from El Salvador, from Guatemala, from Mexico, literally the neighbors that we lived with, they, a lot of them were uh, immigrants and they were the first generation to be in the United States. And uh, many languages were spoken, different types of food and dress. Um, so I, I was blown away that in this community of such diverse people, through the gift of hospitality and just creating space for us to share in a meal together or to have conversation together, I was able to connect on such a human level and see the way they care for their families and what they do for fun and their laughter and their jokes and and even invited them to to share their traditions and their foods. And it wasn't about what I could do, just me and Isaiah to serve our community. It was how do we empower everyone to share their gifts with each other so we all can share in that. So this so this experience of being in such a diverse community, it it was spiritually speaking, it was refreshing and it was, it was enlightening. It, it helped me see the love of Christ in relationships with people who weren't even Christian. Mm -hmm. 
And that helped me see God in such a bigger way than in the box that I had previously put God in. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was there was very powerful moments for me. Um, one neighbor, her name's Gada. She's from Egypt. Um, I remember Gada invited me into her home and we started talking a little bit about our religions. You know, I, I told her I grew up Christian and she's Muslim. And I remember she was just sharing about how she believed in some of the teachings of Jesus. And um, she started sharing with me some of the teachings of her religion. And I was I was like, wow, a lot of what you believe is about how to be a good neighbor um, and to care for others. Kind of like some of the stories that I read in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of finding these like shared values that we have. And, uh, and what she said at the end of this conversation, I just remember she said, um, I'm really thankful for you and Isaiah and I love you because you help me feel so safe here. Mm. And when she said that, I remember I said, wow, I feel such a profound love in this moment with this neighbor who's believes in a different religion and has different cultural practices and, and, yeah, I feel so connected. And and so these are like little moments where I started to realize, wow, God is so big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I started to, so I started to wonder, well, how, how do I like explore these bigger, more mysterious questions about God? Um, and that's kind of where the beginnings of my interest to go to seminary kind of started. So, I mean, with your question, just finding this community, um, living in this diverse community, it really, really opened up my heart to see God in such a bigger, you know, with such a bigger perspective. No, that's 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 incredible, and I think one of the be- more beautiful things, and even in my own story, how I've, I think it was like junior year of college, um, and I used to be like, uh, I was a campus pastor at my old school, and like I would just say stupid. Looking back, I would just say some really ignorant, stupid stuff from stage when anytime I preach, but I I think I um remember being challenged like over a summer, um, particularly by like just some conversations that I had with my my brother, Michael, of like, how what would it look like to just like love somebody where they're at? No kind of like agenda, no like trying to change them or like um, convince them or like shame them into like believing anything you want, like just like literally caring for them, how they need to be cared for from their perspective. And, and that requires listening, that requires patience, that requires um, you setting aside your own stuff and being humble in those moments. And I think I think when you share that, I'm just reminded of that. The mission work and the evangelism really was just like literally community building and like being with them and caring for them and, and loving them and really not necessarily like evangelizing in the sense of like um, trying to convert people. It really was like relationship building and you, you ended up having all these incredible relationships and the impact of that is actually much more and went a lot further than like, like whatever it is we see um, or whatever we both probably were were raised with in like the church setting of like, you need to evangelize because if you don't tell them about Jesus, then they're going to die and then they're going to go to hell and that's it, which is not actually relationship or care or love at all. It's just like shame and guilt and all that stuff. No, I, yeah, I, I'm just reminded of that. And like, I think that that's just such a true picture of like love. Like literally just like mm-hmm. love and care and like how God can be present in those moments, regardless of like any kind of religiosity or, or spirituality that somebody has of like God or whoever's listening, your higher power can exist and be present in those moments. And it can mean completely something completely different for everybody. So I, I just love that um that picture you tell of Yungada. That's that's awesome. 
Yes. Yes. I'm so glad you pointed that out because, yes, that you named it, that big shift of, oh, I was told to be a Christian and I had to tell everyone else to be Christians because they're doomed. <laughs> and <laughs> they're doomed. And I, <laughs> seriously, the, the world, you know, is such a bad place and you don't want to be here and go to hell. So the, like you said, these authentic moments of relationship, when I opened up my heart, I realized Oh my gosh, in these moments, it's not about converting anyone. It, truly to love is to be hospitable and to be generous and to care. Um, this is the lifestyle that I believe God is calling me to live. And I use the word God. Um, it's kind of part of the journey. I've learned um, different language that I use to relate to. I say the spirit or I say the divine um, because I've, yeah, I've been in a journey, um, which we mentioned briefly about, you know, deconstructing my faith. And, um, and so I think about um, how I used to see God as a male who lived in the sky, a white male who lived in the sky, looking down at every you know action that I that I made, judging my uh, actions. You be careful now. He knows when you're sleeping. <laughs> he knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad and good. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, and 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 so in these um, in this journey of just kind of exploring the divine more deeply. I, I realized, oh my goodness, no, God is not limited to what humans think God is. In fact, God, it, it's it's so much a holy mystery. How do we even talk about this, this divine, this spirit that I believe exists in all of creation? Yeah. Mm. We, we cannot put words to it. So, um, so I do sometimes call it God. I call I call it spirit uh, or the divine. You know, just different ways. But, um, but yeah, that those experiences, like you said, just, just radically shifted my perspective on what it meant to be a person of faith and even to be a person who wanted to follow Christ. Uh, Oh, that's good. I'm just, you mentioning about like the divine and the spirit and like just being present in all of creation. I'm just, uh, before when I heard that, that would make me so uncomfortable when I think about it, it makes so much sense of like, of just having like a like a grand a bigger or a more open idea of like who God could potentially be cuz yeah there is this picture of like there's this old white dude that's just sitting on a throne looking down you know and just watching mm-hmm. everything but then like when you i think that picture of that person because like first of all old white dude you know we can get into like white supremacy within um Christendom but the uh the the idea that, you know, a, a grander presence or, or spiritual being, um, divineness, like exists in creation and like how we, like, it's just a reflection of how we relate to the earth. So if we, we have like this dominant kind of like idea of God, then like, how do we show up in the world? Right. And compared to like this, like divineness, like this spirit that is exists in creation. And that means if, if, this divineness and spirit exists in all of creation. That means we have to have a respect for everything and everybody around us, which is a complete like mind shift. It's like, I I think it's just more of like care and true love for the people around us, which I think for some people that are listening, it's just like, what are you talking about? But it really is like an, an openness to like uncertainty. I'm curious about how did you like more settle into the idea? Maybe this does lean into like deconstructing and decolonizing settle into the idea of moving away from that white dude on the throne and like more embracing the spirit and divineness 
and presence that exists in creation. So I started to learn about um, the context of scripture and um, I learned how the a lot of um, what even became scripture was, you know, decided by white men. You know, they decided how the scriptures would be translated and what the scriptures would say and what would be uh, determined to be in the in the canonical um, scripture. Part of my part of my deconstruction was just just learning, being more educated and informed on the history of Christianity. And um, and I learned that the con that the Roman emperor Constantine in the fourth century, this emperor, he, he had a conversion experience when he was, um, in battle and he had a vision of the Christian God. And I believe there was a cross on his, in his vision. And basically with his conversion experience, the Roman emperor Constantine decided to make Christianity the official religion of Rome. So when I learned that, um, I realized, oh my goodness, what Christianity used to be, you know, they were persecuted. They were the minoritized group. And then when the power converted to accept Christianity, that's when sometimes I say Christianity went in bed with empire, mm. you know, and when that happened, I realized, oh my goodness. So a lot of Christianity has been influenced by uh, colonialism, by empire and power trying to keep their power and take power um, from others. Ooh, they ain't going to like um. that, Nettie. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's true. I agree 100%. I said it multiple times, but like the way you're breaking it down, they ain't going to like that. So it's all right. They'll be okay. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. Sorry, I, I interrupted you, but that was just such a, it was, God, that was such a good point. <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, so in this seminary journey, just being more informed, reading the history of people who have been silenced or ignored, um, for example, even the, the, the women in Christian history mm. who just weren't given much attention to, um, I, I realized so many people have been silenced in Christian history. Christianity became uh, married to empire and became um, used to justify the oppression of, of others. And and all of this is happening in in my mind, in my body. I'm realizing, ooh, everything that I thought it meant to be a Christian is is kind of falling apart. It's shedding away. Mm. And with that came a lot of moments of uncertainty and doubt. Um, but I learned to embrace that. I grew up in a in a church where, you know, you you celebrate that we have certainty that there's everything is known exactly like what we believe and how we should live. Um, so to shift and start to embrace un uncertainty and doubt, that's something I learned to do as I deconstructed my faith. I would say continuing to um, be more aware of what it meant to decolonize my faith. I realized knowing the church history has been helpful, but I also need to know the history of where I live, of this country. Um, I actually read something that was helpful for me to understand decolonizing work. And I, I watched a TED Talk and the presenter, her name is Nikki Sanchez. Mm -hmm. She shared that to do the work of decolonization, first of all, is for everyone. Yeah. You know, she's like, everyone needs to do this work. And she says that the first steps of decolonization are to learn who you are and where you came from. Address the oppressive systems and the oppressive histories that enable you to occupy the, ter the territory that you now do. Learn whose land you live on and what has been done to them. Find out how you benefit from that history. Activate one strategy where you can use your privilege to dismantle that. 
and share that the knowledge of decolonization work is for everyone. And for me, that was helpful to just get an idea of how, how do I decolonize my faith by first of all, just learning, how did my faith end up in these lands? How did my faith get here? And how is my, how has my religion or my faith been a part of um, structures and systems that have taken, you know, land or freedom from others? We all know in our context in the United States, Christianity was used to justify settlers coming and taking over the land in the name of the Christian God. Mm -hmm. When you start to become aware of these histories, you realize, is that really what I believe? Is that really what I want to be a part of? So I've been wrestling. I've been wrestling to, to realize, wow, I need to accept the fact that the religion that I grew up in has been so harmful, especially to indigenous folks and to African folks and um, African-Americans. And I, so I would just say these are the beginning steps for me of what feels like just starting to really try to embody and live a, a life where I'm deconstructing and decolonizing my faith. Um, and they do feel like they, they go together. Mm. Yeah. I know we've talked about like, we've thrown out the term like deconstructing and decolonizing how would you like explain those to somebody who might be going through that or as like has no idea what what the hell we're talking about right how would you how would you explain those two um those two concepts um for me to put it simply uh, i think it helps to see deconstruction as the process of of just um being open and more curious to learning, you know, more deeply or to expanding one's perspective or to, you know, investigating. I feel like deconstruction involves a lot of investigating. Mm. And, um, and again, this, this posture of openness and, and receptivity. And just because I might have mentioned this earlier, but just because I think you're deconstructing in something that you might believe in, um, it doesn't always mean that you're running away from it completely. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you, sometimes you might, you might be deconstructing and feel, you know what, for right now, I don't want to affiliate with this system or this group, uh, or this belief structure. And, um, and that's, I honor that, you know, I think, um, it's really important to honor where you are in your journey and to not be ashamed of where you are on your journey. So again, the deconstruction and the image that I feel like is helpful is again, to see it as opening yourself up to see that the foundations that you thought you lived your life on have cracks in it. It's actually going to be broken apart and you're going to hopefully entrust yourself to the deeper foundation that's there. Yeah. Um, and if, as a, as a Christian, as someone who grew up Christian, I still identify as someone who follow, who wants to follow Christ because I, I see Jesus um, as embodying the Christ. The Christ to me is where you have the, the divine incarnate in 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 form mm -hmm. you know that's where it's so it's so amazing to me when you think about how us human beings and we we are finite in our form and yet the the holy mystery like the spirit the the, the great unconditional love whatever you want to call it it's in us and it flows through us and to me that's christ and so jesus shows us the way to live in that connection with christ with god with love there's one example I think of um, when it comes to decolonizing my faith, and that's when I took a, a course on eco-justice. And my professor, she started the course by having us read the Christian story of creation. And you might think, why is reading the story of creation connected to eco-justice? And I realized that what we believe about creation 
influences the way that we live on this earth. It really influences the way that we treat the earth. And in the Christian scriptures, we see language of, you know, humans and in the Bible, you, you read man, um, able to take ownership of the earth. You know, we, Adam named all the creatures and, uh, humans get to be fruitful and multiply. And, and so this logic of domination, I think, comes from the creation story in, that we find in Christian scriptures. And my professor then had us read uh, an indigenous creation story. And when I was able to read the indigenous creation story, I, I was blown away. It was, it was so different. You found language of um, how the humans depended on the animals to be alive and to be cared for. There was mutuality um, of relationship between humans and, and animals and the earth. And the, the humans were offering gifts to the earth. It just radically different language, a radically different relationship between humankind and the earth um, that you would see compared to the Christian scriptures. So it felt like a moment um, of, for me, decolonizing my faith because I, I realized my perspective of creation based on the Christian perspective is assumed to be the only way, the correct way, and the best way. So Christianity has silenced the stories and the wisdom of other traditions. And as a Christian, I believe the heart of Christ is to be humble and open and welcome the creation accounts and the creation stories of other traditions and other spiritualities. How do we how do we see the wisdom that they see from their view and honor that and recognize that and acknowledge, acknowledge that the, the wisdom of the indigenous is I think um, part of this healing work is that we would center and lift up indigenous wisdom and indigenous knowledge and indigenous practices. And so that was something that, that helped me experience a big shift to see how I could decolonize my faith by not agreeing with the colonized, um, the colonizer's perspective, but humbling myself to acknowledge the wisdom. And I think actually much better creation story of the indigenous. Um, so that feels like one example. Um, I, I, I feel like there might be a little bit more that I might be able to share on decolonizing my faith too. If not, it's totally, if if not it's totally fine. I, I feel like, I feel like both are, can be like deeply personal. I, I feel like the the work necessary can be deeply personal. I think deconstruction is much more personal than decolonizing. I feel like there has to be a, an openness, as you even mentioned, to like this other our outside perspective. And so as you even laid out, like decolonizing really is decentering um, the colonizer, which in most cases would be white men that's just i mean anybody that gets offended yeah. with that is like you don't like you're not apparently paying attention to history i think it really mm-hmm. is yeah centering other perspectives humbling your perspective opening yourself up like you mentioned okay so i think uh Nettie did a fantastic job laying out some examples here 
Um, but I wanted to go a step further um, and just add on top of that or a running definition of decolonizing, deconstruction, dismantling. Um, this is not mine. This is Joe Lumens. Uh, she does decolonization and deconstructive work. You can find her on Instagram. I'll also plug her stuff in the show notes. But uh, on the episode of Reclaiming My Theology from White Supremacy Exceptionalism with Brandy Miller, she outlined the three Ds. So the first one, deconstruction. What is it? Deconstruction is the act of asking questions of your beliefs. Was this belief given to you? Was this belief demanded of you? Is this even my belief? The second, decolonizing. This is the work of divesting from systems of oppression and saying how these beliefs that might not harm you, but they actually might be harming those in society. So you want to divest from those systems of oppression. And so this is actually decolonizing is something that only colonized people do. If you're not being colonized, your job is to dismantle. And that's the third D. Dismantling means not only divesting from ideologies or systems of oppression, um, but also divesting from power. So what are you giving up uh, in order to divest from the colonial systems that we have in place today? Which I'm going to ask this, like, how would you describe the relationship between deconstructing and decolonizing? in your own like faith journey? I would say that as I continue to learn more about the history of our country specifically, how Christianity was used to justify the actions of the colonizers, it felt hand in hand to to see how centering, to decenter the colonizers' ways and perspectives was also deconstructing. I was breaking apart what I thought it meant to, to perceive as a Christian so I think about how when the white settlers came to this to this land, I remember reading, and you, I think this might be widely known, but I just remember hearing Thomas Jefferson, uh, he crossed out every scripture that had to do with a miracle in the New Testament. Mm. He only wanted to read scriptures um, that were going to privilege reason. Yeah, just like that humanistic view of, of faith, yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I learned that, um, so that's an, another example for me. I say, okay, so I see how the the colonizer's perspective in Christianity is um, to privilege the mind and to not acknowledge the wisdom that our body carries, that our emotions might carry. It's just all in the head space, you know. And um, and when I learned that that was the colonizer's way and that's what they used to justify silencing the wisdom of the indigenous spirituality, it felt like a deconstruction. I'm, again, investigating and breaking apart what I thought was the, the you know, ultimate truth. And I, I realized, no, no, there, there is so much, uh, there are other ways that are just as, um, I don't know what the word is, there are other ways to access the wisdom of God not just through our mind. So I feel like I might be rambling. So we'll see if I can bring it all together. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm tracking what you're saying. There's just like divine and um, this omnipotent presence in all of creation. So like our idea, the colonizer's idea of like separating the body and mind and saying like, I will believe God fully from reason instead of like, like really embracing even from an indigenous perspective or other communities. Um, I'm even thinking of African spirituality uh, in my case of like really under appreciating the earth and all of creation 
and acknowledging like there's a presence in everything beyond and really like listening and, and um, being in, t- um, in tune with our bodies, which I feel like there's a disconnect a lot of times. But keep, yeah, keep going. Sorry. But I was, I was tracking what no. you were dropping. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, it's helpful. I just think it's helpful to bring it together and, and see how they're connected. So yes, um, when I learned that the colonizer privileged the mind, um, I was deconstructing and opening myself up to other ways to access the divine, not just through my beliefs in my mind, but how do I access the divine through my breath, through my body, through my emotions? And that, that's been a big shift for me, um, this idea of embodiment. I've been able to really lean into that in seminary to learn how to trust what my body is feeling because the, the religion that I grew up in, I would say the colonizer's perspective is that you neglect your body and you don't listen to your body. If anything, the body is something you're ashamed Mm. of because the body wants things that are not holy. Mm. And to decolonize that and then see how it feels so connected, you're deconstructing. Yeah. You're 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 breaking it apart and you're seeing with a different perspective, I think a bigger perspective of actually there is wisdom in what our bodies communicate to us. And I think to fully be alive, to fully be free, it requires listening to our body and our emotions. That's another big Mm -hmm. one. I, I grew up wanting to be strong, which meant to me that I wasn't going to feel um, weak or feel sadness or feel pain. Um, I wanted to suppress those, those experiences. And in this journey of, of opening myself up to deeper faith, I've learned that when I feel an emotion, how do I recognize it as, that, as, a, as a teacher? Mm-hmm. This is trying to teach me something. How do I acknowledge this, stay with this? hold it, trusting that there's compassionate presence in and through me to hold me as I process, why am I feeling this? And that's, and that's another big thing. We talk a lot about what to believe um, and what to do in, you know, the colonizer's mind of Christianity. We don't talk about why, like, why are we doing what we're doing? Yeah. You know, we just, we just say, just do this, just do this and you'll, you'll be good. Well, I can't just do that. We'll just do it. We'll, Let's discover why. Why can't I just do the right thing? So, um, so this this um, posture of being open to explore emotion, explore what my body is feeling, that has helped me access such deeper wisdom that I believe is God wisdom from God and wisdom from the divine. No, I I love that. And just as you were talking about even emotions, I'm thinking about how I grew up of, of like my emotions being like shut down or like not having room or space to like feel and be emotional. I think that that is like we have to like decolonize that to that kind of like mindset. Um, I think I, I think from my own personal experience, I, I think anytime I was told like, you know, guys are supposed to cry or like I didn't see a lot of black men in my life crying or even if a black man or, or men in general like were crying. It's just like, oh, what are you doing? Like you little punk ass or something like that. Just like it was so shamed. But like the like the full human experience is feeling the full range of emotions and, and being present and like you said, learning from those and allowing your your body honestly to be a teacher. I, I I'm I'm thinking about even like from a black experience, and I am not even I haven't read anything on this or, or looked at anything on this, but I'm I'm just imagining like the amount of freedom like and liberation that exists as a black person to like feel emotions. Because like my ancestors didn't have the opportunity to feel like they didn't have the, they were not allowed to have joy. Like any amount of joy was like stripped away from them. And like to, to feel joy is true liberation and freedom and to be able to cry 
and experience sadness and grief, like that is liberation. That is like being fully existent and present in like this, I don't know, like this place we call earth or living. And so like, as you were sharing, I'm, I'm just like, to even decolonize like our way of like experiencing emotion, not to allow others to take that away from us. We are um, in many, in many circumstances, decolonizing that, deconstructing, why don't you want me to feel? Like, is it because mm-hmm. you don't know how to exist uh, or be with emotions? Like, are, like, are you trying to control me or, or have some power over me? Where does that come from and investigating that? And so, yeah, I, I, I always go back to this idea of like, like, I am okay to, to cry. I'm okay to feel sad. I'm okay to grieve. Um, and that's a constant learning thing because it, it really is like, there's so many reinforcements in society and the way that I grew up but like being fully present with my emotions that it's okay and like there actually is and the added benefit there's actually liberation mm-hmm. in 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 feeling those full range of emotions so mm-hmm. i was yeah that's yes. what i thought about when you, when she shared that just like ah yes yeah i'm really glad you shared that um because it makes sense when i think about how those with when the when this country was you know um first forming and the white folks had all the privilege um they allowed their children to feel and they allowed their children to um you know just be kids and like you said for the african slaves or for others who have been um oppressed they were not treated as human beings they weren't allowed to be human and that is intergenerational it does stay you know it gets passed on and so that's that's interesting work to to dive into is um just our collective trauma and our collective healing and what that looks like. Um, but, um, but I, I appreciate how you share um, just how difficult it can be to try to start actually embracing what you're feeling those emotions and their, and emotions. Some of them are, you know, pleasant. Some of them are not, it's really uncomfortable to feel pain or sadness. Um, but if you trust that the divine is this compassionate, loving presence, that's always with you. I think in that grounded presence, with that awareness of this grounded presence, you feel safe in that that space to actually feel it and explore it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to feel um, completely alone in that exploration. Um, one of the one of the biggest shifts for me in in what I feel has deconstructed my faith is learning how to be a a, a better listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to be a better listener, which requires more stillness and more silence, and. I grew up in a church where there was a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, um, praying out loud, a lot of a lot of noise, a lot of music. And that all served me, you know, during that time of my life as a young girl. At this point in my life, silence and stillness is is so much more supportive for me in this in my spiritual journey right now. Um, And it's in the silence and stillness where I am able to actually feel like like neural pathways in my brain are being transformed. I feel like I'm I'm able to unlearn and relearn when I'm able to be still and just just be mm-hmm. to just be, and that to me is part of deconstruction and decolonization in the ways that they feel connected. Um, learning how to just be because the colonizer's mind is that we always have to be doing. Yep. Yeah. No. I. Oh man, that is a, another lesson I've I've learned. I think in particularly last four or five years too of like actually longer than that, but I think it's been reinforced. It's like learning how to listen to just like echoing your point of like the being able to be still being able to just be is like actually something that's very difficult 
to like obtain. And I think it's when people think about like being still or being like just trying to be like doing nothing, they it's almost equated to like uh, laziness or like you're just slothfulness, like you're just doing nothing. The idea that like we have to always be doing is actually incredibly unhealthy. And for some people, like that's their that's their deal. Like that is their therapy to continue to move, um, to, to, to have a mind shift of moving. But I think for me of, of growing up, not having the opportunity to like just be still a lot. Um, I found like even now, like to not do anything to try and be still like it is incredibly uncomfortable for me. Like it takes so much time and energy um, and actually emotional energy too to like try and just like be present with myself because when all that when I'm just like silent by myself all this stuff comes up but it's almost like a uh, like a kettle with water in it like if you have it on the burner and you're always moving it like that water will take forever to heat up if it heats up at all but as soon as you like let that kettle sit it'll heat up like super fast and kind of like overflow and so I think in my most unhealthy moments, I know that I, like, I know that I'm moving or constantly thinking my mind, my mind doesn't sit still, which tells me I need to sit still and like process, like what is happening and examine what's happening in my body, which is why uh, my own personal like practice that I've started to do is like intentional breathing. So I intentionally breathe all day, every day, um, like multiple times, just like taking a few minutes to just like inhale through my nose, exhale, do those things. But like, I didn't realize uh, that this this idea of like moving and constantly be doing and like having busyness was like so tied into like this colonizer's mindset of like white supremacist mind like white supremacy in and of self mindset of just like always having to do and if I'm not doing then I'm worthless which is like it's not true it's completely it's completely the opposite doing nothing is doing Com- something yeah oh com- it's completely false yeah. that when we that we have to do something to be worth something. Yeah. Oh, com- like it's completely false. I, I strongly disagree yeah. <laughs> with that. Um, I'm so glad that you brought up um, what stillness and silence can look like in different ways because you, you're right. And it's so important to acknowledge that it doesn't mean you have to sit down by yourself in a room and be quiet. Um, it means that what practices, it means that you find what practices help the posture within yourself to be still. Mm-hmm. And to be silent. Yep. So sometimes I go on a walk outside. And when I walk outside, I'm intentional to pay close attention to the flowers and the trees and the sounds of the birds. And I will grab a leaf and feel the leaf. I might feel the dirt with my hands. And that to me, I'm moving. My body is moving. And yet my interior posture is one of stillness and silence. I'm just being. And it's incredibly refreshing and restorative yep. and reminds me of what it means to be a human, um, to be a human being. So um, that's so important to point out. Uh, I, I've heard others share about dancing, yep. how dancing, and I, I sometimes sway or dance because it is incredibly connecting for me uh, in my, in my soul and my spirit to move without, without thinking about how I'm moving, but just purely to move, just let my body move. Mm-hmm. And in that movement, interiorly I feel stillness and I feel connection to just be um so that's I think those those are so important to to point out the different ways and practices we can connect with that stillness that interior stillness that is incredibly grounding and um and then lastly you mentioned how for some 
to be quiet and still it's it's so hard if you haven't practiced it mm-hmm. um because i mean it honestly just the range of human emotion and experiences is very intense and um to share a little bit of how i was able to practice more meditation it it started in community so it started with a group of people who were more experienced than i was who led me in meditation so i didn't have to do it by myself and when i was surrounded by a community of people who were purely there to just listen to not give me advice but to just listen and just be present to just be present to me um that was incredibly transformative mm. for me to feel to, to feel safe enough to share what was coming up no that's 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 awesome i think it's just important i just want to put this out to this, like incre- just uh like learning what your body needs and that goes back to what you said Nettie, is like your body can be like your greatest teacher and understanding like what you actually need and so sometimes like i've had to ask myself like lens has asked me like all right what like what do you need today and i won't even i won't or what do i need because if i'm like stressed whatever like i don't know and so i'll have to like sit with myself and like ask myself like what is john like jonathan what do you need today like do you need to go hoop do you need to play video games do you need to go for a walk do you need to read a book like what do you need today and like sitting with that question a little bit longer to understand, uh, you know, maybe it is stillness. Maybe it is like being off your phone and just going about your day, but just like being disconnected from like technology and and and, and um, having that level of freedom. So that's that's dope. How do you think like as we've been talking, I'm, I'm really curious for you. What is the process of like deconstruction and decolonization? Like how has it shaped your how you interact with the world? I know you've talked about it a little bit. But is there anything in particular that has changed how you interact with the world since like you've you started this deconstructive and decolonization journey? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for asking that. I think I think it uh, it's important to, again, note how deconstruction can happen without decolonizing, because deconstruction, I think, um, just involves when you're opening yourself up to the more Mm. you're opening yourself up to the just the more of the great mystery that you just haven't <laughs> become more aware of yet. I, I would say when um, I was starting to deconstruct my faith, I wasn't as fully aware of how colonization was still influencing a lot of my day-to-day decisions and actions. Mm. So that's why I feel like they are different and yet they're so connected. Um, one example I think of when you ask how I'm engaging with the world now is directly in my home. Uh, in my home life, I, I'm a mother to three young children and I'm giving a lot of my energy uh, to how I care for these children, how I nurture them and train them up in this deconstruction and decolonizing work that I've been trying to give my life to. Uh, I realize that I'm learning about how hierarchical structures of power are harmful mm-hmm. and oppress, can oppress people. And, you know, historically in our country, it has, you know, the BIPOC community has been oppressed with these hierarchical power dynamics in society. And I'm here learning about all, all these on this like bigger level of systemic, you know, systemic level. And it finally hit me one day when I, when I paid attention to how I structured power in my home. Mm. It was a big shift for me when I realized I still perceive power in my home as hierarchical. Mm. I have the power and you children don't. Mm. <laughs> and that was very convicting mm. for me. Because I realized in my deepest heart, when I really open myself up to deep, deep love, 
what does it look like to love my children from that place? And how do I honor what they share and what they bring to this home? Just because they are so young does not mean that they have nothing to offer. Mm -hmm. And that was huge for me. It was huge to, again, the home life, which is every day a part of how we exist in this world is, you know, who you are home with. I've been able to become more aware and more mindful of how I engage with my children and my partner, how power is structured here. And um, we are hoping and, and um, being more intentional to have a space of mutual mutuality and reciprocity, even with our children. So yes, we're their parents and we do lead them and we do train them up and we honor what they bring to this home, what they can share and they can offer. And we want to empower them, to empower them to believe in what's inside of them. Even at such a young age, it's incredible how intelligent these kids mm, are. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's one example I think of is just how how learning this work of deconstruction, decolonization can impact your home life, which I believe is so important um, for the way we engage with society. The way we treat each other at home is directly connected to how we treat others in society. Mm -hmm. And I also believe the way we treat our children is directly connected to how we treat the most vulnerable in society. Hmm. So I know we're, we're, we've been talking for a minute, um, but I know that you have so much on that topic for, for kids and spirituality and developing curriculum. Can you share a little bit more about your philosophy? Because you were just really um, dropping some gems right there <laughs> about, <laughs> about raising your kids and the kind of philosophy. Yeah, uh, I think it's a helpful way to bring it together, um, this conversation, that what I want to give energy to right now is how to create um, curriculum and experiences for families with young children um, to learn about God um, and, and specifically in the Christian church. So I found that as a parent, I'm more aware of what kind of language I use when it comes to God and, and in teaching my children. So in, in this deconstruction and decolonizing work of my faith, it means that as a, as a mother, I find myself telling my children, God is like a loving father and God is like a loving mother. God is a loving parent who cares for mm. you. I find that I um, want to be more aware of how I talk to them about God so that they um, are just, it's so interesting because they're so young and you have to kind of meet them where they're at. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, they're so, kids are so incredibly open and they're receptive. And, and my children have shown me that they see God as, as pure love. Mm -hmm. They see God as pure love. And that to me is part of the healing work to not center the colonizer's perspective on the divine, but to acknowledge and honor, you know, indigenous wisdom and other wisdoms of the divine in our home. And so that is something that I feel is a part of the healing work, because um, one thing that has stuck out to me in this last year and a half and with this pandemic, there's been many times where I've felt a desire to go out and be a part of community events, be a part of protests out in the city um, to, to help support movements for justice. And yet with this pandemic, it felt what I needed to do as a mother was be home and take care of my children. I wasn't able to go to go do certain things that I wanted to do. There was a moment where I realized the way that I teach my children is directly connected to healing and justice in this mm -hmm. world. We, we need to raise our next generation to understand love as mutuality, as receptivity, as, hum as humility, compassion, that is how we bring transformation It is through the next generation. If, if you don't have your own children, is there a child in your life that you can be like a parent to? 
um, because I just feel like this is incredibly important work. And so this faith journey that I've been on has directly impacted how I'm a mother, how I'm a parent, finding new ways and just opening myself up to, to, to receive divine wisdom on how do we talk about God to these children. Um, but I'm thankful to just see how my children already um, put their hand on their heart and they take deep breaths and they, they feel their, what their bodies are saying. They, they understand God is just a God who loves them and not a God who's just judging what they're doing. Um, so I'm intentional with, you know, the words and the music that they hear uh, when it comes to like children's music about about God. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know um, we've had conversations even like we've just like, oh, that's actually not good. And <laughs> some of the songs, it's it, just like it's there's a lot of songs that are really um, violent. There's like violent. Just oh like using word, yeah, just using language. That's just like, what the what? Oh, my God. Yeah. No, the song that I always think of when I bring this topic up is. Do you remember? I don't know if you ever heard of this song, but it's um, I think the song said, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, I've never heard this song before. <laughs> it's like for the father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Low and key um, <laughs> I know And when I think of that song, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I was so young just thinking, oh, I better be careful because God's watching me. That is. Oh, my gosh, that is not the love of God. I just don't. Yeah. So I've just, <laughs> I've just been like, we are going to change things up. Um, but I am just, you know, seeking to be open and humble before God just for this wisdom, because it's not easy work. Mm. Um, and I do desire community that uh, supports um, this kind of movement. And I'm seeking that out still here uh, in this area where we're just still searching and finding community that can support us where we're at. Nice. We've been talking about all kinds of stuff and like there is just like some messiness that happens with like deconstruction and decolonizing and, and really interrogating all those things and examining those things deeply. But with that, as we engage in like the messiness and pain and complexity of our world, like how do we even like continue to have a faith while trying to hold the tension of of those things together? And how do we move forward and, and engage in hope and like continuing in faith? Big question, um, but like, what would you suggest to folks that are listening? Yeah, th this might not be a, a popular answer. This is where I'm at right now. I, I've learned that there is great um, suffering in the world, a lot of uh, catastrophe, unnecessary deaths. And initially, um, I would say my attempt was, how do I think through this? And, and how do I make things happen and um, bring change that needs to happen now? And and I, I don't think that is necessarily all wrong. Um, however, in learning how to not only privilege my mind, but to honor my body and my emotion and my intuition and my imagination, there's so many faculties that we have to, to receive wisdom from the, the divine. I've learned that in these moments, what brings me hope is when I can find those practices that help me experience the deep stillness of the divine, that life energy is what sustains me and nourishes me and helps me feel like I have the strength to keep breathing and to keep going. I remember hearing Archbishop Desmond Tutu in a video. He said something like, there is a lot of great evil in the world, and yet there's been a lot more great acts of love in the world to keep us here. Hmm. The fact that we're still here and going. And part of the suffering, just part of the suffering, is that we take for granted each other. Mm -hmm. We take for granted the acts of love that have kept us here. I don't want to dismiss or deny 
the actions we need to take to bring healing and change in our structures and systems. And yet um, there's something about tapping into this deep interior stillness that feels like hope, empowerment, and love. And I believe that when we pour this love into one another and, and specifically into the next generation, that we're going to see how the next generation will prepare us for the birth of what's new and what's, go- what's going to come. Mm, that's good. Yeah, y'all, so she, after, uh, she was just dropping that from the dome. She wasn't reading anything. That was just from the dome. <laughs> Yo, that was great. That was so good. Sorry, I cut you off, but... <laughs> No, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, probably probably a good thing is I'll keep going. <laughs> Yo, all right, Nettie. Well, thank you so much, sis, for coming on, um, sharing your heart and um, being so vulnerable with the Real Fan community. I really, really appreciate you. Um, I don't know if you have anything to plug, but if you want to plug anything, feel free to plug um, yourself. Um, you mentioned that you're a spiritual director, but also I know that you're trying to you want to only hold a few amount of clients <laughs> during this time <laughs> since you're trying to close out your um, your uh, uh, grad school and everything like that. But no, it's, it's all good. I'm more than happy to share that. Um, I've um, studied the certificate in spiritual direction here at my school and um, would love to offer spiritual direction for anyone who's interested. And I do have my email, which I can perhaps share with you and it can go in the, the notes. Yeah, I can do that. And anyone's welcome to reach out by email if they just want to um, connect and just see if it's, you know, it's something that will support them during this time in their life. But spiritual direction is just a way that I can offer compassionate listening presence uh, just to just to be kind of like a companion on the journey and not to give you answers necessarily, but to help you find the answers that are within yourself, because I do believe everyone has this divine wisdom within. So it's just finding the space to, to excavate it and discover it. Nice. Um, Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was a really great, really great time. I used to have this terribly skewed idea of love. That people were completely incapable of loving others the right way if they weren't Christian. I am absolutely ashamed to admit it because that is one of the most ridiculous things you can say out loud. This belief, this ideology really made me think that I was better than any other person I came in contact with if they didn't fall in line with what I believe. I often think about all of the people that I have wronged or hurt or messed up spiritually because of straight up ignorance and arrogance. Loki, I probably owe some folks money for some therapy sessions. And as much as I wanna chalk this up to white supremacy and white Christian exceptionalism, I can't. Well, some of it I will. The fact of the matter is, I loved the power and authority I was granted. It felt good to be the exception. To some extent, it felt like love. I was loved, quote unquote, because I was doing the right, quote unquote, again, things and doing things the right way. But what I didn't recognize was that I was willing to shame and guilt people into a belief system that I didn't even fully believe. I wanted to keep the power and authority I was granted because of my faith. And to keep it 100 with y'all, about 90% of the stuff that I was doing, things that I was saying, how I was acting, wasn't because I loved folks. I honestly believed that my proximity to whiteness would fast track me to power, to authority, to recognition, into opportunities. 
gross. I can't believe. Yeah, gross. I can't believe it. Yeah, Ugh. it. But it's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah, I'm trying to sit in that, but it's absolutely true. There's a little jingle I made up. Anytime I witness that or think back to my own experiences of doing that, it goes like, proximity to whiteness doesn't give you a pass. Proximity to whiteness only bites you in the ass because it really does. Those of you who have been rocking with me for a minute know that I have been working on deconstructing and decolonizing. I've processed my own actions and participation in white evangelicalism over the years. A lot of my perspectives have grown. Thank God they've grown, but specifically on love. Now, I obviously don't believe that Christians are the only people capable of loving. That's, that's just not true. Love is such a multifaceted thing, feeling, emotion, action. And the reason why I don't have an answer, I'm reading this book um, by Bell Hooks. It's called All About Love. And that book is messing me up. It's a incredibly thoughtful examination on love. I highly recommend it. And Hooks says that to truly love, we must learn to mix various ingredients of care, affection, recognition, respect, commitment, and trust, as well as honest and open communication. And I've been reading this book the last few weeks and I've been reading it slow because it like is bringing up a lot for me. And this concept of love came up in my past experiences as a pastor and all these different things. And I'm, I'm thinking about how so one dimensional my view of love was, and in some ways still is, but like love is so much more than just this belief in this thing, belief in some ideology, belief in like this somewhat kind of faith. It is messy, it is patient, it is kind, it is honest, it is direct, it is caring, it's affectionate, it's recognizing, it's present, it's all of these different things. <sighs> and so I'm still trying to figure it out, obviously. Another thing, as I was editing this pod, the portion of me and Nettie were talking about decolonizing and deconstructing i feel like it was lacking and not because of a a, a piece of effort or or, or um, unpreparedness on our end um, i think we did a, a pretty good job but something just didn't sit right with me on it and i think it is because i was thinking back to the conversation with melanie um, about like just whiteness and anti-blackness and, and, and kind of like decolonizing. And I think in the context of America specifically that we have to, it is important to kind of put those in perspective along with like the indigenous wisdom that's present. And so I think a lot of the resources that I found and we did, and me and uh, Nettie discussed really centered around like indigenous folks, but light-skinned indigenous folks. And so there is wisdom to be present and available um, and to learn from dark-skinned indigenous folks, dark-skinned um, uh, ancestors of mine, African folks that were brought to this country. Uh, and so I will do better on doing that. Um, that was just a, a personal conviction that I was feeling. And I just wanted to call out, apologize to anybody that saw that and recognized that. And I want you to know that you're not alone um, in seeing that. So. Yes, I will do better moving forward. I will also provide a few uh, different resources in the show notes. So look at those. There are some great people to follow that are doing some decolonial, decolonization work. Um, but just wanted to point that out. This podcast was produced by myself, Jonathan Dumas. 
Additional production help by the incomparable Lindsay Dumas with music by the oh-so-talented Mr. Tony Deras. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Also, the Patreon page, you can support the show at, with as little as $3 a month. It really goes a long way. All right, I will catch y'all later. Till next time, peace.